Almighty God, our King, our Creator, our Savior, our Father, we praise You for who You are and for all Your infinite perfections and for Your wise and wonderful works with Your Son and with the Holy Spirit. You planned all things for Your glory and for the good of Your people so that all of history unfolds according to Your eternal decree, Your perfect plan. With Your Son and Your Holy Spirit, You created us in Your image. When we fell away, You redeemed us. You saved us from sin and death and Satan. Indeed, Lord, we gather here today to rejoice in You, to rejoice in Your promises, Your forgiveness, Your feast, all the benefits You freely pour out upon us. Help us today to know we are Your beloved people. You are with us even when shadow and darkness fall over us. Give us grace to worship You now in reverence and fear and holy joy, drawing near to You with hearts assured of Your love and peace. We thank You for being the promise-remembering God and the sin-forgetting God. We thank You for being the God who commands us to be righteous and who forgives our unrighteousness. We thank You for being the God who laid the curse of death upon us all because of sin, and yet for also being the God who makes us alive again through the blessed gift of Your salvation. O Lord, fill us with hope undying, joy unspeakable, and the peace that passes all understanding. Amen. Our lesson of the day is from Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Again, listen carefully to God's Word. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of Yahweh which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May Yahweh cut off the man who does this, arousing and answering from the tents of Jacob, and who presents a tribute offering to Yahweh of armies. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of Yahweh with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, so that he no longer regards the tribute offering or accepts a delightful thing from your hand. And you say, for what reason? Because Yahweh has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And did he not make one with a remnant of the Spirit belonging to them? And what was the one seeking? A godly seed. So guard the spirit that is in you, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. If one hates and divorces, says Yahweh, the God of Israel, he covers his garment with violence, says Yahweh of armies. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have spoken to us Your Word. You have instructed us in how we ought to live in covenant with You. 
We thank You that You promise to bless the preaching of Your Word by the work of Your Spirit to make it effectual in showing us Your wisdom and bringing us to salvation and sanctifying us and consecrating us as living sacrifices by the sword of Your Word. We pray that that would be the case this morning, that You would open our hearts to receive Your truth. And I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. It always makes me nervous when I start studying for uh, a sermon and you, no matter what, what book you pick up, every scholar includes something like this. Now this, this verse is one of the most difficult verses in the book of Malachi. Now this verse is one of the most difficult books, difficult verses in the whole Old Testament. Like, oh boy, <laughs> great. Who am I? Who am I to try to speak to these things? Uh, this is a uh, challenging passage for a number of reasons. I've pro- so I've provided some sermon notes uh, in your bulletin today uh, with uh, a translation that I have put together um, from my own work and from the work of some uh, well-respected scholars, uh, along with an outline there to try to, to help you be able to follow along if you would like or to, to stick it in your in your Bible uh, for future reference. Uh, This is not a passage that we can just pass by uh, for a number of reasons. This is is the central passage of the book of Malachi. If you remember from uh, the first couple sermons I preached on Malachi, everything moves in toward this central section. So the book so far has been moving in toward this section and now everything's going to kind of move back out along the same themes. So this is, a, this is the hinge. This is the focus. This is the center structurally and thematically. It ties everything together uh, and it uh, shows us where Malachi is headed in the rest of the book. Uh, like many of the prophets... Malachi addresses the covenant of marriage and its relationship to God's covenant with His people. And as we've also seen in previous sermons, the book of Malachi specifically focused on the Old Testament tribute offering from Leviticus chapter 2. And there is a special form of the tribute offering that we read about in Numbers chapter 5 called the inspection of jealousy. It's basically a stripped-down tribute offering. No frills, no bells, no smells. Uh, it was something that a husband could, um, could do if he suspected that his wife had been unfaithful. He could bring her to the sanctuary. The priest would go through this uh, ceremony And if she was innocent, she would be vindicated. And if she was guilty, God would punish her. It took judgment out of the hands of of the husband and it put it in the hands of God. What we see here in the book of Malachi is that Malachi the prophet is doing that very procedure with the nation of Israel, with the priests themselves. 
they have been they have broken covenant that that phrase deal treacherously or break covenant occurs uh, like five times in these short these like six verses or seven verses this is the main theme of the book and it's the main theme of this passage that the people of God and specifically the priests have broken covenant they have violated God's covenant and we will see particularly how that is being done. The reason Malachi addresses marriage in this passage and uses that idea of the inspection of jealousy as his framework for um, pronouncing judgment on Israel is because of the relationship that marriage between a man and a woman has to the covenant that God has made with His people. In many different ways and throughout Scripture, the Bible teaches that the covenant of human marriage symbolizes, reflects, and represents God's covenant, His marriage to His people, His bride. This is throughout the Old Covenant, throughout the New Covenant. It actually forms the bookends of the entire Bible. The first couple chapters, we read about a marriage between a man and a woman in the garden, the template for all marriages. And at the very end of the Bible, we read about the marriage to which all marriages point, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage between Christ and the church. <clears throat> because human marriage symbolizes the marriage of Christ and His bride, human marriage, marriage between a man and a woman, is inherently evangelistic. We are always, in our marriages, we are always saying something about God and His character. Either we are accurately representing God's faithfulness and God's love and God's covenant loyalty to His bride through our loyalty to our marriage covenant, or we are preaching a false gospel through showing through our lack of marital love and faithfulness. It's inescapable that human marriage is always saying something about God. And this is exactly why the prophets so often speak of unfaithfulness to God as infidelity, or adultery, and they describe God's people often as an unfaithful bride. Here in Malachi, he's dealing with both of those aspects. There is literal marital unfaithfulness, but that is only a symptom of their unfaithfulness to God, an indicator, a sign of their unfaithfulness to God. The two are inextricably linked. They go hand in hand. You can see in your sermon notes that this passage falls a, uh, follows a very clear chiastic outline where it, it moves in toward a center where the, the kind of the main meat, the, the main theme is, and then it moves back out. And I've put in bold the key words for each section to show you kind of how, how the themes are working here. So I'm just going to follow Malachi's outline. I figured I wouldn't try to improve on it. Uh, you, can't go, you can't get much better 
uh, than a divinely inspired sermon outline. So, um, if you don't like it, well, <laughs> you know who to talk to. All right. Uh, let's begin with uh, uh, the first section here. Malachi introduces this theme of covenant and covenant breaking and calls, uh, pronounces a general, uh, a general judgment for the overarching sin of covenant unfaithfulness. He begins this question like he, be, he begins this section like he begins every section with a rhetorical question that packs a punch. Malachi frames his indictments in rhetorical questions. He says, Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? The key words in this verse, you can see in, there in bold, are one. One Father. One God. And at the end, he'll pick this back up in verse 15 with the word one. The, the oneness of God set Israel apart from every other people, every other nation. The twelve tribes of Israel had been united as one people by God. Uh, God had made a covenant with Abraham to make his seed more abundant, more numerous than the sand of the sea or the stars of the sky, but God made this great people one people, His people, and He was their one God. They only we were to worship Him alone. And so, of course, the, the great confession of Israel was the Shema the De- in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is, of course, the first of the ten words. You shall have no other God before me. This was the the thing that set Israel apart from the other nations. And they were bound together in this covenant with the one God, their Father. Notice the familial language in this passage and throughout the book of Malachi. God is constantly referring to Himself as the Father of His people. And they are His Son. As His Son, Israel is commanded, is expected to show proper honor and respect. But they have not. They have broken covenant. The word covenant. There are 55 verses in the book of Malachi. Covenant appears six times. That's a pretty pretty high percentage. And specifically, Malachi refers to the covenant of our fathers. This is the covenant by which God became the father of His people the covenant of the fathers of Israel, the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, the covenant of the fathers. This is the covenant that they have broken. God is their Lord. He is their Father. And they have rebelled against Him. But not only does their rebellion uh, violate their covenant with God and Uh, depart from the ways of their fathers, of their ancestors, their betrayal of the covenant is a sin against their brothers. By virtue of the fact that they are one people, one 
nation who has been joined together in covenant with their one God, any sin that they commit against God is automatically a sin against their brothers. It's automatically a betrayal of the other members of the covenant. To deal treacherously uh, is it refers to infidelity, to violating a covenant, or to breaking an oath. And when the, the Israelites commit these sins against God and His covenant, they are sinning against their fellow Israelites. The principle here for us is very clear that no one sins in isolation. No one lives in isolation. No man is an island. And so no one sins in isolation. There is no such thing as a private sin. There is no such thing as a sin that doesn't affect anybody else. Everything you do, everything you do affects someone else. Even if no one else knows about it, everyone you know, everyone you are in relationship with, everyone you are in covenant with is affected, is hurt, is damaged, is betrayed by your sin. And so Malachi begins with this very stern, general condemnation of the people for breaking covenant with God, for abandoning the faith of their fathers, and for betraying their brothers through their sin. But what exactly is this sin? In 2.11, Malachi says, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of Yahweh which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So here's the specific sin, the specific way that the people were breaking covenant with God. <clears throat> uh, it makes there are alternative options, but I think it makes the most sense to understand this phrase, the daughter of a foreign god, as referring to a non-Israelite woman who was engaged in a pagan religion, pagan, a pagan woman. This is not by the way, and Malachi is not forbidding uh, interracial marriage. They're forbidding ma marriage with pagans. They're forbidding uh, marriage outside the covenant. There were many Gentile God-fearers among the people of Israel, but the people were never allowed to marry, intermarry with pagans who were practicing idolatry. So the sin here is that Israelite men married pagan women and were most likely led into idolatry. Nehemiah even refers to the example of Solomon. He was the prime example of someone who had married, intermarried for political reasons or other reasons. You know, hundreds and hundreds of wives and concubines. And it was the source of his downfall. He was wet, led away from the faith because of the idolatry of his pagan wives. So far from being a harmless uh, private matter of personal choice, who you marry affects the covenant community. 
intermarriage with a non-believer, with a pagan, is called an abomination that had profaned the sanctuary of Yahweh. Now, don't forget that the sanctuary represented the people. The sanctuary represented the people. When the people sinned, the sanctuary was defiled. And so the, the temple, the sanctuary had to be cleansed as a symbol of cleansing the people. The two are connected. There's a symbolic connection there. So when Malachi says that they have profaned the temple of Yahweh, which he loves, it's another way of saying that not just that God's in love with a building, but that God loves His people who, the, who are represented by the building. And the people in profaning the temple of the Lord have profaned themselves and despised the God who loves them dearly. And so having announced these charges, the sin of intermarriage with pagans, Malachi pronounces God's judgment on them in verse 12. May Yahweh cut off the man who does this, arousing and answering from the tents of Jacob and who presents a tribute offering to Yahweh of armies, to the Lord of hosts. The verdict here is exclusion from Israel and rejection of their worship. Don't miss what's implied in this verse. It's bad enough that the people were intermarrying with people, with women outside the covenant. It's bad enough that they were being led away into idolatry through intermarriage with pagans. But even worse than that, it seems that the people of Israel were committing these horrible evils while still pretending to be in covenant with God. It says that there, it implies that they're still bringing tribute offering to the temple. They've committed these heinous sins. They're still coming to the temple to bring their offerings. They're still coming to worship God. These are probably the very same men who were brazen, brazenly bringing corrupted offerings to the sanctuary that we read about at the end of chapter 1. This was the height of arrogance. And you can see that their defiled worship was merely a symptom, a reflection of their general lifestyle of rebellion and hypocrisy. The tents, this reference to the tents of Jacob may very well bring to mind the story of Phineas that we read last time from Numbers 25. So God, Malachi calls on God to cut off any Israelite who is committing this sin by uh, cutting them off from the tents of Jacob. Just as Phineas was zealous for the Lord's covenant and cut off the man and his pagan uh, consort who were profaning God's covenant in the camp of Israel. Uh, this... This phrase, arousing and answering, uh, or awaking and responding, is, is sort of vague. It's not exactly clear uh, what that's referring to. However, it, it seems to mean that Malachi is not letting anybody off the hook. It seems to mean that whether 
the people are whether these people are going out and seeking out this evil, whether they're going out and trying to find uh, pagan women to marry, or whether these pagan women are coming and seducing the men of Israel, like in Numbers 25 when the Moabite women were coming to seduce the people of Israel at the at the instruction of Balaam, whether they're the uh, the people going out and looking for the sin or whether they're being uh, led away, seduced into sin, nobody gets a free pass. They don't get to, to plead uh, the victim. They're all guilty uh, of, this, of this sin. Uh, just because Adam stood by while Eve disobeyed God's Word and listened to the serpent, that didn't mean he got a free pass because he was led away, uh, led into sin. He was actually held more accountable. So this is the idea here, that God is not letting anybody off the hook, no matter their role in this sin. And so in verse 13, he actually moves backwards into addressing another specific sin besides the sin of intermarriage with pagan women outside the covenant there is another sin that they are committing verse 13 says this is another thing you do you cover the altar of Yahweh with tears with weeping and with groaning so that he no longer regards the tribute offering or accepts a delightful thing from your hand now, what is this reference to this second thing that they do? This covering the altar uh, with tears and with weeping and with groaning. Uh, I don't think this is um, the Israelite men who are intermarrying with pagan women pretending to be really sorry. <laughs> oh, we're so sorry. They... If you read the book of Malachi, you nowhere get the impression that these people are even close to acting like they're sorry. They seem like they're brazen sinners in rebellion against God. I think it's more likely, judging by what he'll go on to say in the next couple of verses, that the tears that are covering the altar, the weeping and the groaning that these people are presenting to God on the altar are not their own tears of fake repentance, although that's possible. I think it's the tears of the faithful wives, the Israelite wives, that these people are divorcing in order to go pursue pagan women. Understand there here the significance if that is indeed the case. The tears of betrayal. God says, you cover the altar of tears with weeping and with groaning so that He no longer regards the tribute offering or accepts a delightful thing from your hand. If you are proving unfaithful and covenant with your wife and your wife is weeping tears of betrayal before the Lord, and you come and you bring a tribute offering to God expecting Him to accept it and show you favor as a result, 
the only offering that God will see are those tears of betrayal. The tribute offering, remember, is the work of human hands. It's taking the good gifts of God, making it into something even better. Bread, taking wheat, grinding it, baking it, making it into bread, pouring incense, putting salt in it, presenting it as an offering to God as the work of your hands. Well, in this case, the work of the hands are these tears of betrayal. The signs of covenant unfaithfulness. And those tears are the only offerings that God sees when these men come to bring their tribute offerings. This is one of the most sobering biblical truths for husbands. Do not expect God to accept your worship if you are sinning against your wife or failing to uphold your covenantal responsibilities to your family. In 1 Peter 3, we see see the same exact sort of thing. Peter spends seven verses talking about how women, how godly women and godly wives should adorn themselves and should act. And we often focus on those seven verses addressed to women, while there's only one verse at the end in verse 8 addressed to men. But that one verse in 1 Peter 3.8 packs more of a punch than all seven of the other verses addressed to women. Peter says that if a husband fails to live with his wife in an understanding way, if a husband fails to honor his wife as a co-heir of God's grace, then his prayers will be hindered. His relationship with God will be corrupted. Why? Because of this connection between human marriage and God's covenant with His people. And we will see more about this in just a minute as to why this is the case. But here's the takeaway. Here's the thing that should give all of us husbands pause. If our prayers seem to be bouncing off the ceiling, if we find that our blessings seem to be turned into curses, we need to check the status of our marriage. If you are grieving your wife, husbands, if you are neglecting her in any way, if you are being unfaithful to her with your thoughts or your eyes or your actions, if you are disrespecting her, You must repent and reconcile with your wife before you can expect God to accept you or your prayers or your offerings or your worship. Unfaithfulness in marriage, breaking covenant with your wife is also a form of breaking covenant with God. And the only cure is humble repentance. But there is a cure. There is grace to those who repent and who seek God's forgiveness and seek 
the forgiveness of their wife. Verse 14 goes on to spell out exactly how these husbands are breaking covenant with their wives and why these Israelite wives presumably are covering the Lord's altar with tears. For what reason? Why doesn't God accept our worship? Because Yahweh has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. This is some, verse 14 carries some of the richest and strongest language about the nature and purpose of marriage. There are three important ideas here that we need to look at briefly. This idea that a marriage between a husband and a wife is a covenant. This is one of the few passages, there are a lot of passages in Scripture that allude to this reality, that show or demonstrate this reality, but here in Malachi 2.14 we have one of the clearest, explicit teachings that the covenant of marriage is indeed a covenant. It is not a legal contract. It is not some sort of loosey-goosey living arrangement. This is a binding covenant with oaths and obligations. The marriage covenant binds a husband and a wife by oath with obligations to one another. But beyond that, beyond the idea of marriage just being a covenant, Malachi teaches us that Yahweh Himself, God Himself, is the witness to the marriage covenant. We may think of a witness as somebody who gets called into the courtroom to say what they saw. This is what I saw. This is what I heard uh, to give testimony uh, of their um, observations or their involvement in a case. But that, the biblical idea of a witness, the idea that God is a witness to the marriage covenant is so much more than just God saying, well, yeah, I was there when the marriage happened. A witness to a covenant in the... uh, in the ancient world, in the biblical mindset, entails that that person is not only someone who sees it happen, so to speak, but they are responsible for enforcing the covenant if it is violated. God Himself was and is a witness in your marriage, in every marriage. Do you think God cares about your marriage? Do you think God notices what's going on? Do you think God is going to enforce the covenant that you made, the oath that you made? Absolutely. Absolutely. Malachi goes on to say to describe the wife in her in relationship to her husband. Wives, pay attention to this and husbands especially listen to how Malachi describes the relationship between a husband and a wife. More than simply referring to... Malachi refers to the wife as the wife of your youth. You have betrayed the wife 
of your youth. This is not just referring to the fact that people got married when they were really young back in the day. This is a term of endearment. This speaks of the wife's inestimable value in the eyes of her husband. The wife of one's youth is the woman who goes through the ups and downs of life with you. The wife of one's youth is the woman who, Lord willing, bears and raises your children. The wife of your youth is the woman you grow old with. The wife of your youth is the woman you esteem above all others. It's a man's first love in the richest and most meaningful sense of that phrase. And so to be unfaithful to the wife of your youth speaks of the deepest and most painful sort of betrayal. But also, Malachi describes the wife as the husband's companion. This word companion speaks of the wife as a partner, as an ally, who shares the same commitments and labors together toward the same goals. Treachery against a companion is the epitome of shooting yourself in the foot. This would be to turn on your allies. Whereas Paul says in Ephesians 5, to hate your own flesh. To betray your companion, your co-belligerents, your co-laborers. In times of trials, in times of hardship, couples have a sinful, seemingly built-in tendency to turn on one another and to fight against one another instead of fighting for one another and working together to take on the challenges of life. Husbands, your wife is your companion. She is your most important ally without which you have no hope of defeating the enemy who is attacking you and your family. Your wife deserves your full protection and support. Fight for her, not against her. After all, this is exactly what Jesus has done when He laid down His life to redeem His bride and to save her. After describing this covenantal nature of marriage and the depth of the betrayal uh, that is taking place, Malachi finally uh, spells out exactly why uh, he points back to the original marriage, I believe. This, these are some of the more uh, obscure verses. There are a couple of different options here that scholars have uh, have decided upon, but the idea is still still generally the same. I think this verse here is a reference to the original marriage, the template for all marriages. When uh, Malachi... Malachi... By the way, this section is one of the few passages where Malachi actually says anything. 
The whole book is God speaking, but this section so far has been Malachi speaking. And here we pick back up with God Himself speaking. Verse 15, And did He not make one or make them one with a remnant of the Spirit belonging to them? And what was the one seeking? A godly offspring. So guard the Spirit that is in you and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. If one hates and divorces, says Yahweh, the God of Israel, He covers His garment with violence. So I think that Malachi is pointing back to the marriage of Adam and Eve, the original marriage, the template for marriage. It could be that he's referring back to the covenant with Israel, the marriage of God to Israel that he's alluded to in verse 10. It could be that. I think it's the same basic idea either way. When God made Adam, as uh, when Adam was in the garden, God made him uh, a helper suitable to him. But notice that God only made one wife for Adam. I think that's part of what Malachi is saying. Did not God make one? It could be that he's saying, see, God only made one wife for Adam. This is, a, this is a, something we should uh, pay attention to. But even more than that, I think Malachi is saying that God made them one. One flesh. God formed Adam out of the dirt. He glorified Adam by breathing the breath of life, the breath of God into his nostrils. But then God further glorified Adam by ripping him apart, taking a rib out of his side, making another woman more glorious than he, and uniting them, putting them back together as husband and wife. This is the glorification of Adam. And the the blessing of God's Spirit was upon this. Malachi goes on to say, that one of the main reasons for this union, the, one, of, one of the main purposes for marriage, was for the procreation of godly offspring. Adam and Eve were commanded to be fruitful and multiply. One of the initial purposes for marriage, and still one of the primary purposes for marriage. But let's remember a few things. Having children is not the same as having godly children. The two are not necessarily or automatically connected. Having a big family doesn't make you holier, especially if your kids are rebels or hypocrites. The command is to have godly seed, whether that's one or whether that's 21. The command is for godly seed. But on the other hand, too, remember that the inability to have children or choosing not to have children does not automatically make you unholy or second class in God's kingdom. Having godly seed is one of the primary purposes in marriage. But there are a number of different ways that married couples without children 
or married couples whose children are grown, or maybe single adults even, can contribute to the work of raising up godly offspring. If you don't have any children of your own, there are other ways to contribute to the work of raising up godly offspring through foster care, through adoption, through investing in the children of the church, finding ways to support and encourage parents as they raise their own children. This is work for all of us, and this is work that we commit to in baptism when we vow to support the parents of these children as they raise them in the fear of the Lord. So God created Adam and Eve, made them one because He was seeking godly seed, godly offspring. But if you are intermarrying with pagan women, or if you are divorcing the wife of your youth, you cannot expect to raise godly children. It just doesn't work most of the time. Maybe by God's grace there might be an exception, but that's the exception. That's not a reason uh, to try to do it. And so the, the first part of verse 16 describes exactly how the men had broken covenant with their wives. They had apparently divorced them out of sheer hate, out of sheer contempt. They had no legitimate reason for divorce other than, apparently, to go marry a pagan woman. Verse 16 says, If one hates and divorces, says Yahweh, the God of Israel, He covers His garment with violence. Some, a lot of translations say, God hates divorce. But the, the verb uh, hate is in the third is in the third person, and God here is speaking in the first person. So I don't think that translation really gets at what exactly Malachi is saying. God says, if one hates and divorces, God is not as much as God does, I think, uh, grieve over the divorce of His people when that happens. I don't think God here is categorically disallowing all divorce of any kind. I think God, what Malachi is saying here, is consistent with the rest uh, of Scripture in teaching that there are rare exceptions where divorce is legitimate. They are rare exceptions, but there are legitimate exceptions. And by the way, I'm going to be teaching adult Sunday school next week and this is one thing that I want to come back and spend a little more time on. So if you're interested in fleshing this out a little bit more, I encourage you to come next uh, Sunday morning for the adult Sunday school class. But basically, I think what's going on here is God says, if, if you divorce your wife for no other reason than you hate her, or you dislike her, or you can't stand her, you are covering your garment with violence. You are doing violence to yourself because you are in union with your wife. You are doing violence to your wife. And possibly this is priestly language saying that you have disqualified yourself from coming into God's presence in worship. 
through illegitimate divorce without legitimate warrant. And finally, in closing, Malachi concludes with a summary exhortation. Take heed to your spirit, or watch out for your lives that you do not deal treacherously. This is the the closing exhortation. Don't break covenant. Don't break covenant with God. Don't break covenant with your wife. The two are intertwined after all. Don't betray covenant with non-believers by entering into marriage with non-believers. If you are unmarried and desiring to be married at some point, do not break covenant with God by marrying a non-believer. And if you are already married, don't betray covenant with your spouse through infidelity or unjustified divorce. In our culture, I started this sermon series on Malachi the the Sunday after the Obergefell decision was released. This is a very timely message for our culture. It's been a timely message for our culture, okay? Let's, Let's make that clear. We've been on this path for a long time. But if God's people are going to take a stand and show the world with any sort of persuasive power at all the meaning of marriage and the the biblical model for marriage, it's going to happen in the way that we live out our lives. If the church is filled with infidelity and adultery and premarital sex and fornication and pornography and all the rest, then we have no room to talk, at least in the way that will persuade anybody that God's way is the way of life, the way of peace, the way of blessing. And if we are unfaithful to God in our marriages, if we are unfaithful to God in our efforts of raising up godly seed, then we are jeopardizing the faith of future generations path that Malachi lays out for us here is the path of blessing. This is the path to passing on the faith to the next generation. This is the way we show the world the glory of life in God's kingdom. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for these hard words from Malachi that remind us of the importance of living faithfully in the covenant of marriage, in the covenant of Your people with one another, and in covenant with You. Please, Lord, convict us of our sins. Give us strength from Your Spirit to uphold Your Word and Your instruction that we might know Your blessing, that You might hear our prayers and receive our offerings and pour out Your blessings upon us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.